0: Hi there, and welcome
1: back to The Fuse Show. Today I'm joined by Sunir Shah. He is the founder and CEO of AppBind. They make it easy for service companies to purchase and manage subscriptions uh, to software and ads without taking the financial risk of being between their clients and the recurring billing. For SaaS companies, they've doubled the activation rate of uh, service channels by fixing all the problems that service companies have. He's also the president and founder of the SaaS Partnership Network, the Cloud Software Association, the former head of partnerships at FreshBooks, CMO at O'Lark Live Chat, Dad and Bad Dancer. Thanks for joining us in the show. Thank you. I read that so
0: dead deadpan. It's like, it's a, I'm very seriously a bad dancer. It's what I do.
1: <laughs> hey, some people actually uh, love love different styles of dance, and uh, hey, that's not bad. I feel like you can probably keep it beat better than I can. I
0: was trying to I was trying to channel my, channel my inner Carlton Alfonso, you know. Uh, I like how you
1: added the uh, bad dancer component because I think that not a lot of uh, not a lot of our guests will put
0: something like that into their uh, intros. Life is
1: well, for Thanks for joining us the show.
0: Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me here. So I love the I... founders helping founders because being a founder is goddamn terrifying. And so if you have oh, stories from other people, everyone's like, everyone is like, oh, I'm killing it. It's like, are you killing <laughs> it, or is it it killing you? What's happening? <laughs> Yeah,
1: yeah. I, uh, I've i actually unsubscribed from all of or I stuck entirely stopped using um, Facebook and Instagram just because I feel like most of the founder experiences you'll see highlighted are the ones that I guess garner whatever the platform considers the most attractive for engagement. And almost always it's like overly positive or overly negative, And I feel like the reality is somewhere in between. Uh, do you have any personal, like, I don't know, uh, terrifying personal horror stories that you've experienced or like. Something in the middle that you would like to share uh, in terms of what you've experienced as a
0: founder? God, yes, I mean, I always said I'd only become CEO if I was dragged kicking and screaming into it, and that's basically mm-hmm. what happened. I was not happy mm. with the idea of being a startup founder because it was—it's terrifying. Like, I've been worked, I've been in startups my entire life, uh, my career. I mean, so since I was eighteen, sixteen, maybe. I mean, because I, I graduated from high school in '97, so the dot com was happening. And immediately I was gravitated towards startups. And I grew up in a small town in in Canada, you know, in Deep River, Ontario. Uh, Have you ever watched Mulholland Drive since you're from LA? The characters from Deep River, Ontario, because David Lynch picked it out of a map because it sounded crazy. It's like, you have no idea, David Lynch. It is a crazy town. Because it's a nuclear research town. And like all these PhDs stuck in the middle of a of a of a, of a, mosquito-driven forest and we're all going crazy, like all these like, city people from around the world. We have a Nobel Prize winner in that town, you know, and there's just, like nothing to do. And so you can imagine all the <laughs> children, uh, which was me, like going crazy. But, I, you know, the internet had come uh, to pass. I'm not explaining how I got onto the internet when there was no other internet than through the nuclear research facility. There was perhaps some teenage hijinks to get in through the nuclear research facility's internet connection. I'm just. Suggesting these are more innocent rights. <laughs> oh my gosh, security. Anyway, so uh, I got online. I was following the internet. I, I, I got really excited by all of this. Uh, I got into the becoming, I want to be a startup entrepreneur. I like to start up the energy behind it. Uh, and I've been in this world since my entire career. But, you know, I've known a lot of founders and it's like super Super stressful. I was like, was I ever like capable of being the leader? Because it's a lot more than just being a software developer or a marketer or a mm-hmm. salesperson. Uh, but I had to do it. Like, I got to this point where I was at Olark, CMO. Uh, I was chief chief marketing Olarker at Olark. And, you know, I don't think it would be surprising to them. I was there for almost five years. My third kid was coming. Uh, she, my wife was uh, due in December of uh, twenty. 16, and I just couldn't fathom going through another. um... By the way, every time I have a child, I change my job. So (laughs) when I had my first child at FreshBooks, I quit. I gave him a year's notice uh, and I quit because I I just—it's a lot of. For me, being a parent is even more risky than being a start founder. My second kid, I went through at Olark. but once I had my second kid, while I was at Olark, I already started to change the team, so I, I would leave. But I just hung on for too long. My third kid was coming. I was like, I, I I already built a team. I'd hired my replacement. I was like, I had to go, and and figure out what I'm really doing with my life because, um, I don't. Do you have kids, David? I do not, but my co-founder has a
1: good number of them, both adopted. It's really
0: own. different. Yeah. It's it's, as you know, I've you know, I have you know, obviously a lot of men who have uh, friends who yeah. have uh, friends who are men who have children, and they will tell you it, it's like you you think you're going to take over the world and conquer earth and then you have children and then suddenly your priorities completely change. Right. Cause you're now you want to protect that yeah. and, and support that. And, you know, as a startup person, I thought it was like a cowboy. I would go and do it. was k- like kill, a killer. I would go and like, but as soon as I had kids, I just, I just nothing. No, I didn't want to do any of it. And so I, I didn't want to work for someone else.
1: Mm.
0: I wanted to control my own life. Uh, i 'm Canadian too, and Olarc is American, so we have totally different uh paternity leave uh, policies as well and I had never had really taken paternity leave with my first two kids. I wanted paternity leave with my last kid um, so i i I quit without a plan uh, and you know my heart honestly while I was at Olarc you know as I thought I really believed in the product and I still do uh, what they were doing but i obviously I care about partnerships way more than I care about um, live chat and it occurred to me that I was really more interested in what, I was, what this would end up becoming out blind, uh, that problem. And so, you know, with this existential question of, you know, with my child coming, it, basically what I was saying in my head, I, I needed, every time I have a child, I, I rethink my life. Because it's, it's cause you never know what's going to happen to a child. They right. could be, you don't know what's, if they're going to be born healthy or not. And you're just like, I'm like anxious about this. And so I was thinking about everything, uh, and, and I was just like, okay, you know what, thank you, I built the team at Olark, they can take over, goodbye, I'm fine. I gave them like, a, like, you know, six months notice, it wasn't like I just, like, pulled up, like left, but uh, I was like, I'm done here, uh, I need to do something that makes sense for me, That I, where my heart really is, and, mm-hmm. and I wanted to balance what meant was meaningful for me at work and meaningful for me at home. I needed, you know, I, was, I reached that point in my career where I felt I was capable enough to take on that risk. And so I said, okay, let's do it. And then as soon as I did that, I felt, oh my God, what the hell have I just done?
1: <laughs> so this is 2016?
0: Yeah, 2016. Child number three?
1: Okay. Yeah. Have you had children since 2016? Is there a No, I job? I ended that.
0: I Ended that. Okay. I told my wife and I have an agreement. I'm done, but she, if she wants to have continu- more children, she can continue on and do that. It's fine. <laughs> it. So no more job changes then. No, exactly. I'm I'm committed now. <laughs> so like the first when I first left, I didn't really I didn't know I was going to do appbine. I I knew this problem. So the problem that we're trying to solve with appbine I've been working on forever. So The question is, why can't someone else sell your SaaS software for you? That should be a straightforward question. If it was anything other than a subscription, the answer would be, I'd ship them a box of it. And then they would sell it. Like, that's how that works. Everything works that way, except for subscription stuff. And so, you know, when I was 18, the reason why this bothered me, I grew up, I'm I'm a super nerd. So I grew up, uh, you know, uh, with Byte magazines, like when I was eight. You know, reading about the PC revolution and how quickly that grew. And by the way, you know, you know, Jason Lemkin talks about the the hundred million dollars ARR. You know how long it took Lotus One Two Three to get to one hundred million dollars in ARR in today's money? I don't. Well, today's money is worth less thirty percent less than last year. So let's just pretend it was like last year's money. Okay. <laughs> let's ignore the pandemic. Money is not as worth as much as it was in, in twenty nineteen. <laughs> Definitely. Okay. In twenty nineteen, it took one year, one year for Lotus One Two Three to get to one hundred million dollars you know uh, sure. that there's nothing there's no sass that it's achieved that you know uh and that's on real sales it's not like groupon where they're selling ten dollars for nine <laughs> <laughs> reselling money effectively yeah for less you know it's, it's for like they were actually creating a hundred million dollars of value in one year oh. uh and the reason they did that was partnerships and through the pc like the distribution like in, back in the yeah. 80s it was it was a big deal you could buy a computer in a shopping mall. You know that, that before you could only buy it from you know DEC, like from an enterprise sale or through a distributor, and you can go. To, the idea of going to a sh- any shopping mall in America and buying a computer and software, you know, think about that from a distribution point of view. Well, mm-hmm. that, that was what the PC revolution was, personal computer revolution, and you know I just assumed that like, all software was sold this way, and it is. It still is. Sixty four percent of B two B software is still sold through partners, you know, as of twenty nineteen. Uh, I don't, pandemic. Who knows what happened? But you know, as of 2019, less than 20 percent of SaaS B2B SaaS is sold through partners. And like, what's the story? So I used to be a software developer. I when I, when I was 18, I moved to Ottawa. Uh, you know, and I worked for this company called Ingenius, and they had a product called Soft TV. And Ingenius was a consulting company, a Microsoft shop, right? Clients would call us, and like any contractor, you know, like a like a general contractor renovating your bathroom, you know, that you wouldn't <laughs> ever go to the hardware store to buy your own drywall, wood, pipe, gaskets, right, right, right. valves. Like that makes no sense. You would fire that contractor. Like, what, what are you talking about? I don't even know what a gasket is. You know, like, what do you want me to do? Uh, by the way, I know what a gasket is. Please don't. <laughs> <laughs> the rubber brain wheel. Come on. I've made that joke. Uh, the other one is flux. What the flux is flux? Here. I know it flexes too. Anyway, so, the, the, so we would go buy the, the computers and the networking and the Windows licenses and the SDKs and build the system, right? Cause it's like any contractor. And then we would implement the mm-hmm. system and we do the training for the system. And then we would hit the maintenance contract for three years. And if you're maintaining the system then you're talking to the client for three years. So then you can build the next system and the next system and you just keep going. Mm-hmm. I thought literally nothing of this because human contracting has been like this since the age of the pyramids, like literally. Like this is how humans work with each other. You know, I, I don't know how to solve this problem. I have a real problem. I hire a trusted expert. They solve it mm-hmm. for me. They take care of everything for me, and they deliver the business results that I want. That's how contracting works. And then I started mm-hmm. the marketing team at FreshBooks, and then later the partnership team there, You know, and it immediately blew my mind. So FreshBooks, is, so if you don't know, is an invoicing platform, now basically cloud accounting, but for service companies, primarily digital service companies, you know, creative web agencies, developers, marketing agencies, IT consultants at the time when I was there. And they, what I noticed was, this is 2007, uh, those who were building businesses around subscriptions, their service revenue was shrinking and the lifetime of their clients was, was shortening. I was like, what's going on that's here? The, you know, that's very strange. You know, if you had licensed software, you would have three-year contracts. I mean, that's how that works. That was normal. And then I went to partnerships because in my head, all software was sold through partners. I mean, that's just how it was. Uh, you know, a partner would call you up, you would ship them a box of software, salute them and call it a day. It was really simple. You know, because they were doing end customer support and deployment and all that stuff. So the first call at FreshBooks I had with a partner, immediately I just hit the mud. Like everyone hits the mud immediately. There's two problems with subscriptions that are not like licensed software. Number one, the customer owns their own data. So how does a partner create an account that they can manage but the customer owns and controls? That's a huge problem. Hmm. And there's even a bigger problem is how do you get between a customer on these ongoing recurring subscription payments? So it's a lot of accounting headache, which is you go underwater or just on the accounting. I mean, these are companies that sell time. They don't want to spend time doing expense tracking. Plus who loves expense tracking, but raise your hand. I mean, no one, right. And that, but the real problem was the financial risk. So getting between a customer and their money, like their charges is a huge amount of liability and risk for the partner. And if you are a product, like if you went to business school, right. If any like You understand what a value chain is. For a value chain, you create an opportunity for the next person down the value chain to build a business based on you, right? You create an opportunity for them. What you don't do is ask them to take on a whole bunch of risk to sell your product. Like, that makes no sense. You're not, you're not trying to make their business worse by working with you. You want to make it better. But subscriptions, mm-hmm. all we're doing is selling risk to our partners and creating no opportunities because you end up taking the customer off their hands and like actually removing opportunities for them. And suddenly you're like, hmm. this doesn't make any sense. It didn't make any sense to me. Right. I mean, it doesn't make sense to you. Like it's totally insane. Right. And so like this bothered me for so long. So like going back to where I was with this idea, it's been, it's been sticking with me forever because it's, it, I, I love partnerships. Like like perhaps too much, as you said in my bio, uh, I think, well, partnerships are, of course, the way every technical product is sold should be uh, because it's just you can't reach everybody with a phone call and, and an added email. You have to work through the global distribution network. I mean, if you're selling locally in Indonesia, you're not going to be able to do that for Mountain View. It's not possible. Even selling in the middle, you know, you, you can't even sell in Wisconsin from Mountain View effectively. It's just not a very efficient way to work. Mm. But also from a, just a, being a partnership person, it's a lot of fun because it's relationship marketing. So you get to like meet people. Uh, it's very rewarding, but like so, I was sitting there thinking about this problem. Like no one can make a business based on SaaS except for the SaaS companies. All the SaaS companies were hitting like ceilings. Like, you can't predictable revenue your way out of this problem. And if you actually look at the gross margins, of a lot of the public SaaS companies are still negative. Like like they have they they project to return no profits forever, uh, which makes you wonder why their stocks are worth more than zero dollars. You know. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean they're all hoping to solve this problem like they have a good product it sells people like it they, there's no efficient way to sell it you know except direct and so like you know this that I, I found a solution you know with AppBine AppBine is a really simple solution hard to build uh but like what's a subscription it's an email on the credit card that you use to sign up the partner should never use their own email and credit card because they're, they're they're stuck in the client subscription which the client should own but the client can't give them an email and credit card because then you know Yeah. So what do we do? We create a shared email and credit card, a virtual email, a virtual credit card. Partner creates a new email, a new credit card for that subscription. They can sign up. It forwards all the emails to the customer so the customer owns it, forwards it to the partner so they can manage it. And all the charges on that credit card, we automatically expense to the customer. So the partner's never in the middle of the financial risk. And we also handle all the accounting for them. Plus, they can add their margins and all sorts of things so they can actually build a business based on this hmm. and actually what turns out it's not just buying one subscription what this is enabled for people on app the agencies are using us the system integrators and dev shops they're, they're building systems which is what we used to do you, you're, you're taking over a whole problem area for a customer and saying to them yes i'll take care of it for you and customers love that because they don't want to think about the pipes you yeah? like right. just take make the water make the toilets work i don't care how just make it happen. And you're like, yep, I'll take care of it for you. Absolutely. And then that's a real value add. All these service companies are tech companies too. They may not be writing code, but they're building systems out of the products, right? As they should be. And that's selling those systems. And that is where the world will end up. And we're enabling it. It's amazing. That's a long story. Everyone definitely wants the end-to-end solution.
1: It's like the general contractor that just does. Like You tell them the high-level goal and they just do it. Like I think the, the fewer details users get involved in generally the more satisfied they are absolutely
0: i mean they just it's too confusing for them to and they hate it they hate every minute of it like why would they want to talk to a vendor they're talking to you already you're the vendor right like as this marketing agency or a dev shop you're their vendor like why would they want to talk to some downstream vendor that's your problem right
1: Um, do you have a typical ballpark of the number of vendors that a um, i guess user in your platform would connect to their
0: clients yeah so scott brinker you can use an objective standard. So he's now at HubSpot, actually. Um, but he has—I think it's Scott Brinker. Anyway, he has. There's like a, the Martech landscape. It's—they show that the uh, 14, there's average of 14 Martech tools in a marketing agency stack. That's pretty much common. Hmm. You know, and you know in AppBind, uh, what we have seen—it's a bit strange because we're transforming things. Uh, so at the beginning, people like, well, we only do Facebook ads. We only do HubSpot. We only do Mailchimp. Or we only do ActiveCampaign. Whatever yeah okay so just use it for that for now but what they realize is once they realize the customer doesn't care about the tools that you're bringing in to achieve the results they care about the results and if you're staying in there right solving the problem not the method that's your problem the customer's talking about the problem the problem gets deeper and wider and more interesting and you can start saying yes i can solve that And with AppBind, you are given permission by the client, effectively, to go and bring in the right tool to solve the problem. And you end up creating more value. So what happens is, over time, the agencies are on AppBind start expanding the number of products that they're using. Because before, they they were saying, no, I can't do this. And now they can start saying, yes, I can do this. And that's how you create more value, right? Because the software is not... I mean, it's, every software company thinks their software is important. Even HubSpot, you know, is important, or campaign, you know, is important. But it's not more important than what the point of it, of it is, right? And as a, as, the, as a trusted expert on the customer, you're the humans working right. on the human problem, right? The business problem. It, it, it is, you know, it, so seen, we're seeing, like, expansions, like, you know, like, more and more things than people even thought they could bring into a project. So you know, I wouldn't be surprised that as we mature, like the average number of subscriptions, you know, is more than the average number of subscriptions a typical marketing agency has, who's only doing, hmm. you know, uh, referral. They're only doing the work, but no, not managing the systems. Or as someone once described it to me, in agencies, you know, you know, I, I always felt like I was selling the sprinkles but not the donut, and HubSpot was getting a donut. <laughs> I'm just getting the sprinkles. <clears throat> now, you can't build a business on the sprinkles. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You have to sell the whole thing. Customers buying you know, the, the, the result, the experience, not the little bit of work you're doing, right?
1: Right. So how are you finding these agencies that are a good fit uh, to use your platform?
0: Good question. So uh, we're pretty young, so there's a couple ways. One, I know a lot, so I'm just using my own network uh, to do that. Number two, uh, I run the agency Connect Cocktail Party at the Inbound Conference. Uh, I was hoping to have another Inbound Conference this year, but it's virtualized, so I guess we'll just run another one virtually. Uh, we ship bottles of wine to everybody. It was kind of fun. Um, it's, actually not, it's actually more affordable to run a virtual cocktail party. Than, oh, for sure. <laughs> uh, so we might do more of them. Um, so we do a lot of that. Uh, more, actually, very interesting. The model for AppMind, not too surprising, is uh, we're actually building the product... For the SaaS companies, ultimately, because they're the ones with the actual yeah. problem getting to market. So, mm-hmm. if you have a customer, we have one like Deepcrawl. They have a bunch of SEO agencies using us, right? And so, uh, when we go to the SaaS companies, I know them all through the trade association, the Cloud Software Association, which is all the partnership people at SaaS companies. We solve the problem for them. They bring their agencies on board to enable those sales. You know, the product Appline is actually a product for them. They become like App like their Appline accounts belong to the agencies because yeah, rather than a software company, it's important that they own their own data, right, as well, mm. right? But then they are free to bring in other SaaS products. And then become we go back to those SaaS companies, and then we have the agencies. It becomes a virtuous cycle. And we end up building, the goal is to build a, a pool, a win-win pool, you know, where you have more and more of these companies who are willing to bring you into client projects, and you know, more of their tools that they're mm. bringing into the client projects all working together in a platform that makes sense and takes the risk out for everybody. And that's our ultimate plan, you know, as, as a Canadian uh, you know, as evil as I get, I, I, we take our 2% tax by making everyone richer. Is that is that evil as a Canadian? I... <laughs> yeah. And is that uh, 2% on, I guess, all expenditures? Expenditure? I mean, that, that's is our that target. The... I mean, that's our basic model. I mean, because we're moving money. So we just decided to take it out of the money stream, like any payment network. So we get, we're get we using credit cards, so we're going to take the money from the credit card fees, right? Because it's already there, so it's easy place to make money. Yeah. And we think it's important... Philosophically, to charge uh, the software, like the, the agencies, the solution partners, something, something nominal. So we charge on 1%. Because, okay. uh, you know, I guess we don't technically necessarily need to do that in every circumstance. But the point is, I don't want them to feel like they're the product that we're being sold. We actually built yeah. Appline first for them. Like, it's you're the customer. Yeah. The SaaS companies are also a customer. But weirdly, The agencies are more important, even though the SaaS companies are a go-to-market strategy. Because who's closer to the customer? You know, it's 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 the service companies, and if we don't serve them well, and they're they're the ones who've been eating risk all this time, if we don't get them into a happy position, this whole market's going to collapse. So that's what we're doing. So if for whatever reason,
1: does your company carry the risk? If say like a transaction fails and someone refuses to pay a bill, like what happens in those situations? Is it purely between
0: well we certainly can. Account? And we went to, when we opened when we went to market, mm-hmm. uh, that was definitely the model. And for some of our most of our customers right now, because they're in the old system, we are underwriting the risk, but that's not the goal. Right. So uh, really the person who should be taking the risk for the subscriptions is the one with the money. Who has the money? The customer. Right. By the way, a lot of SaaS companies don't get this. They think the the partners should be pay or is the one paying them. Is there for the partner's the customer? I I have hit this wall. I don't know how I get past this point. Mm-hmm. It's like Clearly, your partner is not paying you. They right? Don't. <laughs> Where do you think they're getting their money from? I, like, I, don't
1: know. I just see that every once in a customer paying you
0: through the partner. Yeah, yeah. like the custom, the the partner is will never should never ask them to take on any financial risk to make you money. Right. That makes that's an insane proposition. <laughs> you know. Okay. Anyway, so the, so what we what we have in AppBind... uh. I'm pretty happy about it. It's pr- I'm pretty proud of this. So we, we built something called subscription orders that look like purchase orders uh, that the that the part, like the service company like a marketing agency would give to the customer that explains the project. So we're going to get Facebook ads and Active Campaign mm-hmm. and um, Sumo.me and put together a project. And there's a budget for the subscriptions a subscription budget of let's say five hundred dollars a month, including the ads and you know is it itemized or max total. Well, it's just like a. It works like a top-up card. Have you ever been to Starbucks oh, yeah, yeah, or yeah, okay, a, gotcha. on a top card? Because yeah. the subscriptions have variable prices, yeah. so it, it just goes down. Like so, it was five hundred dollars. It goes below a hundred dollars. You can set it whatever okay. you want. re upped it to five hundred, but it gives and you know max like a thousand dollars a month. Put some controls for the client. You know that's the budget. But you can you can just set up a budget for the expenses for the for the entire project, and that gives the service company than the authority to go and sign up for everything and manage it for the client. But the client has like one bill for everything, mm-hmm. but the money is the customer's paying for it. And out of that, the agent, like the service company can go purchase the subscriptions without putting their own money yeah. at risk, which is where they all get scared. Mm-hmm. No. Can AppBuy underwrite it? Yes, we can. And we probably will. And offer like a, like an interest rate for that like an overdraft overdraft protection because mm-hmm. One of the rules of value chains is the financing is actually creates the size of the market. Mm. Something you learn in business school. Like the fashion industry, I don't know if you know this, is entirely built on loans, right? So if you're Mm. in America and you're ordering clothes from Europe, you know, they have to make the clothes. (laughs) So you order it and then you have to make the clothes and then they deliver it and then you pay them. So how do they make the clothes without the money? So then they factor the, it's called factoring the order, and so they have to get a loan on the order in order to produce the clothes, and then they send the clothes over, and then you get paid to close the close the loan, right? Uh, but then your ability to sell clothes is based on the ability to you know, credit your 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 like the retailers, the wholesalers, who are purchasing from you, so that like limits your size. Same thing with ad agencies too. Like if an ad agency does happen that you underwrite your ad, your media buy for your clients right, then you're basically a bank, you're offering loans to your client. No one likes thinking about it, but it's true. Mm-hmm. And so if you're a agency, you, you're limited by the size of clients you have, by how much money you can afford to like, risk with clients. Uh, and that's why like Omni, which is the biggest one, takes all the biggest clients because they have the biggest amount of lines of credit. So they can mm-hmm. take on risk like that. But small agencies can't take any risk, right? Because uh, it eats into payroll right. pretty quickly. And so those kind of problems should go away. Yeah, this, like what AppLine is trying to do—I know this is a very technical point—but we want to take the risk out of these service companies entering these businesses because your your skill and expertise is is, is it could be amazing. Your financing should not limit your growth,
1: hmm.
0: right? Your 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 skill should, should, and there's no there's no reason for you to be in the middle of the client's expenses. You know, you're just managing it for them. You know, and let us build a platform that, you know, takes you out of the equation, but allows you to grow a real business, building systems, building value, being the trusted partner of the client, being the kind of person who can say, yes, I'll take care of it for you. You know, that is what humans should be doing for each other, right, at the service level.
1: So for clarity, is the virtual credit card a virtual credit card, or is it a virtual debit card?
0: A virtual credit card. Okay. That way we get the...
1: is there a, like additional spread that you get for like I guess providing virtual yeah, credit cards? Yeah, I mean cards? that's the whole point. So the credit okay. bins,
0: you get uh, merchant fees, which is fair. So like the vendor's are already paying it, so you might as well like the software company is already paying it. You might as well use mm-hmm. it, to underwrite the channel. So
1: one of the things I think about in the world of consumer credit cards is like there's a ton of like people love to game the system of like credit card like points or miles or whatever. Is there an equivalent in the like the business-to-business credit card space?
0: actually more points you might get from amex uh so we could we thought about it provide uh because we got a spread we can offer some of the yeah. spread but then we, we eats into our ability to operate the business and really the spread you're getting is on the retainers like the service revenue so like why are you dipping from us like we're enabling you to get more service revenue so let us live and underwrite your billing and then you make the money from the client who has all the money you know, shouldn't be making money from us that makes no sense uh, and actually most of the companies that we talk to that's you know like that they don't feel like it's a reasonable place to squeeze us because it's like a meaningless amount of money the place where it does matter is where you get airline points like like whatever you call it so you can take your wife off, as if people say in the msp space it's always your wives i don't know why because it's a male dominated industry i want to take my wife out for vacation every quarter uh like and they take it it's like a, it's technically it's not legal like the irs would tax that but they take it as a tax free uh Tax-free uh, earnings from the company because you can use the credit card points to buy vacations because no right, one wants right, right. <laughs> to listen, man. If you came from us, we would tell you to the penny how much that's worth, and that would be like, <laughs> make just make more money and then take. Your money. Easy solution. I know, that I know that really makes me makes me makes me uh, miserable that people are, are are like penny wise pound foolish. Like, build a better business. <laughs> All these MSPs are going under right now. There's a huge consolidation because people are trying to sell them because they can't get into the subscription business. They don't know how to make money uh, because they can't build systems anymore. They're getting cut out. The the, the customers are going directly to the vendors. They don't need. So once once you get the customer to deal with the vendor directly, here's what happens. They didn't have staff to solve this problem, but then you made them I mean, have staff because you asked them to deal with it. So they ha- like, yeah. you won't deal with it? You're not going to take care of it for me? Okay, I have to figure it out because I need this problem solved. So then they get, they go find the staff and they eventually hire someone because you're useless to them. Like you didn't solve the problem. <laughs> yeah. Like it's universal. They just replace you with someone. Like someone once told me, I was a Magento Imagine conference. This guy was amazing. He was the COO of a chocolate factory in the Northeast, New England. Right. And he said, he was, he was hilarious. I met him at lunch. He's like, I I don't want to be here. Okay. Magento imagine. So Magento is a shopping cart platform, open source. It's huge. Right. And so he did not want to be at this e-commerce conference in the middle of Vegas at 45 degrees Celsius, whatever that is in American, a thousand degrees Fahrenheit. I don't know. You know, he didn't want to be there. Right. Uh, But he was there because, you know, he's running a chocolate factory. It's been around for 80 years. He's on the phone like every four minutes during this lunch, by the way, because the trucking union was was giving him a heart attack. He was in a labor negotiation Mm. while he was in Vegas. It's like, so why are you here? Listen, I didn't want to be here, but I hired these whiz kids from Manhattan, you know. By the way, he was like a thousand years old, right? He's a Methuselah. So he's like, everyone's a kid to him. Just roll with it. He was hilarious. I hired these whiz kids from Manhattan. I think we need to get on the Internet. We need to sell our chocolate on the Internet. So I had these whiskers in my hand. They seem to know what they're doing. They got us on Magento. Yeah, they said, we're going to do that. And then immediately they did nothing. Yeah. Late, I was like, what do you mean they did nothing? I knew the agency <laughs> they hired. Like, they don't do nothing. Yeah. They were like a serious yeah, agency. Yeah. And they were like, obviously, they're in the 20s. I mean, they were kids, let's be honest, 20s and 30s. But, you know, they, from his point of view, but they didn't do nothing. But I was like, what do you mean they did nothing? Well, the first thing I did, I said, Take, get this thing done. And the first thing they do, they made me, like, gave me a whole list of things to do. I was like, what do you mean? Well, you had to go and sign up for all these vendors. You had to go make all these perks. <laughs> like, like his, his, his auto mechanics would never make him buy a part for anything. Fix my trucks. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yes. go buy. Can you? No, you fix. <laughs> That's the way it works. Trucks broken, trucks fixed. That's how our relationship works. You know, I don't want to hear anything else. That's it. Broken truck, fixed truck. That's at the end of our conversation. Okay. But with these e-commerce guys, they made him do all the work. So he's like, I don't know what to do. So he had to find someone internally to go handle all these vendors. And then it's like, this is annoying for him. Cause he's like running a, like a, like a serious business. So, yeah. so he, so he's like, what do you think I did? I so I don't know. Like, well, I went to the community college and hired, hired a couple kids. I got a web developer and a, inter- and a marketer, you know, and I was like, okay, more kids. Right. And I was like, well, do you think I got the best? I hope so. Of course not. They're from community college up in New England. The best were in Manhattan. (laughs) But they're my kids, and I love them. Who do you think I saw? And who do you think I saw at the Christmas party? My kids or the Wiz kids? Uh, Your kids? That's right. So who do you think I kept? Your kids. That's right. And I love my kids, meaning his staff, right? He's like a... Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. So I, I brought him here. I came here with them because they have never been to a conference before. I came here with them so they can learn and develop and be better at what they do. That's why I'm here. I hate being here, but I love my kids, and that's why I'm here. But those whiz kids are the ones who should have been doing all the work. They're like that's absolutely goddamn true. And that's what subscriptions. That's great feedback. Yeah, and I was like that is you know I had the, I, when I was consulting, I had the exact same situation, exact same story, where I didn't do I didn't buy it because I was afraid of the subscriptions. All right, and I made my client deal with it, and he was like, "What are you doing?" <laughs> Like my plumber's not making me buy my own pipes, you know, he was building a, was building a physical store. He was a fashion retailer, building a physical store. I was doing an e-commerce site, the analytics. And, I, and 72 hours from launch, he noticed that none of the analytics was done, you know, uh, because like the phone number actually is all he noticed. There was no phone number. I was like, why is this not done? It's like, I, you didn't sign up for anything. So I got him on a video call. like, put your email in here. Put your password in here. <laughs> I feel him like a child. I felt so bad. I, I, I knew this was wrong because I knew I had the idea of AppBind in my head already. I knew, and I, we, were, we were pretty friendly, him and I, because we're the two adults on the project. So we were already like had a good, but he was so disappointed in me because I had the whole project. I was the most professional person and I hadn't gotten any work done, right? Because I couldn't get anything done. So he signed up for two of the six things I needed, and he said, "Senior, my plumber's not making me buy my own pipes. Frankly, I expected you to do this. Working with you is 10 times harder than not working with you. You know, get it done. I'm like, yep, absolutely right. I bought the other four subscriptions on my credit card and then canceled my credit card immediately because I didn't want to get renewals on them, uh, yeah. which is a nightmare. And then I delivered, uh, and then I caught up with him a month later. It's like, listen, Obviously I was fired, you know, that was like, no, no brainer. I was fired immediately because, and then, it, but I was talking to him cause I knew it, but he knew, he knew what I was thinking about. So I was talking about, just tell me what was going through your mind. Cause I, I want to fix this problem. It's like, listen, my plumber doesn't make me buy my own pipes. I expected you as a contractor to just take care of it for me. I don't understand what the hell you wanted. You said you wanted it. You should just get it done. I, agree. I trusted you. You were my guy. You were going to take care of it. You should have just done it. And frankly, it was really confusing, like all these t- analytics tools. Like he's just not a, he's not a computer scientist. He doesn't need to know any of it. He's like making clothes, right? right. Uh, and it's like, yeah. And it's like, and, you know, just think about it. Not only you wasted my time and everyone else's time on the project and delayed everything, right? Uh, but you, you you know you waited till 72 hours from the deadline and you had to stay up all night to deliver because you couldn't control your pro- your your own project. Yeah, because he understood cognitively why I didn't want to buy the subscriptions, but he just understand how that could be a thing. You know, like why is that a problem? Shouldn't this be solved? It's like it's not solved. I just want to. And it's like like how can you run your business, scenario if you can't predict when you're going to do the work? Like you have to be able to control your schedule you can't be waiting till 72 hours from the deadline to like sprint an like, overnighter to do the work you can't no one can run a business that way I'm like absolutely a lot of agencies are like this right mm-hmm. uh, it's like and you know like the plan was i would build the system and then, and then maintain the analytics and then cuz i did the, get a maintenance contract like a retainer and then i would go for, like just like the old days and get the retainer for the system and then build them the next system the conversion rate optimization and from there mm-hmm. the ad spend and i just keep going with them and honestly if i was successful maybe i wouldn't have atpine because i'd have a, cons- a you know an agency right but like, so, but I was immediately fired because I, I I made him do all my work, you know. Like that doesn't make any sense. Mm. Like, you know, he's a he's a he's a tailor. You know, clients would call him. He, he wouldn't get them to go buy his own fabric. Like it's like I make the clothes. Right. I measure them. I find the materials. I make the clothes. And I call them when it's ready. That's how this works. <laughs> it's like yeah, <laughs> right.
1: So when you were mentioning earlier how you want you really wanted to avoid the CEO role, was it that moment that you re- like you realized that I have an opportunity to make things right? Was that that
0: moment or was it additional things added on as well? Well, so like I'm 42. I just turned 42 uh, last week. And so um, it's pretty average and normal for startup founders to be in their 40s for a reason. So <laughs> I didn't want to be a 20-year-old because I didn't 40, know what the hell I was doing. 40s. It was too much risk for me. Uh, when you complain about something for like... 14 years in a row at your conference, at the keynote every year. So people just roll their eyes Oh God, sneer Again, reselling is the future. <laughs> Shut up. Every year at the conference, at my own conference, SAS connect. I, same story. I said, like, when you complain about something enough, you know, in project management, then you should fix it. Shouldn't you? No, it's like realize the only person mm-hmm. who's going to fix this was going to be me because I'm the only one who cares about it enough to invest so much of my time and energy in fixing it. And the thing is, I didn't have the technical solution until virtual cards became uh, possible. It still took time for them to even come to fruition. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, once you complain about something enough, clearly I cared about it. And if, it, if I didn't work on it, I would be disappointed in myself. Right. Cause I, I could see the solution. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I decided it was worth doing. I'm not lying to you being a founder, you know, stressful i mean it's not easy um but if it's worth doing then well, what's what's the worst that happen? We're, t- we're in tech we're basically all aristocrats you know how can- you can out of tech <laughs> you know we're already in the top like 0.01 percent of humanity wealth wise i'm not globally yeah, i'm I not saying it. that to brag you know I, I just like realistically you know the idea of complaining about our poverty you know is insane you know we're all made it and so, if we have we have a responsibility, I feel, with the time we have on Earth, you know, to make it better. And if I see this problem, you know, mm-hmm. I think I can improve it. And I think it's not a small problem. I think it's a it will affect if I solve it properly, millions and millions of people's lives in a positive way. It seemed like a worthwhile thing to do. That's what motivated me. Uh, but you know, there's like so much stress. You know, like, you know, you're I'm building I'm building a a te- like a, a very weird abstract idea. I gotta find a story that makes it work. There's multiple parties involved. I gotta raise money. Uh, it's like there's financial risk because it's a credit card product. Uh, I have the three kids at home. The pandemic. Like it's a lot. You know, um, I'm not saying it's easy. I don't. I wouldn't say you should become an entrepreneur because it's fun. Like no one should become an entrepreneur unless you have a purpose. In my opinion, because if you don't have a purpose, who's buying your stuff, right?
1: Right. You know. I actually love hearing the stories behind purpose, and I think it's definitely true that in, for a lot of, especially Silicon Valley, like corporate employees, the safety net you have in life is generally pretty substantial. Um, you, may, you may not feel like it's substantial in comparison to your like, colleagues and your peers and your managers, but in the grand scheme of things, like the, I forgot the website, I'll probably throw it into the description somewhere, but this is a website that shows you your percentile in the yeah. world based on your income. And effectively, if you're an American, you're effectively, like instantaneously top, top, like, I don't know, one to five percent, I guess, based on where you are in the United States. Even the
0: worst. I mean, there's definitely people who have horrifying lives in the United States and in Canada. Um, We should seek to improve that. But we're not in that situation in tech. Right. And so, you know, why not take that um, privilege? I will say that one of the reasons why it made me scared is, so my last name is Shah. So those of, us, those of you who know what that means, so I'm, we're Gujarati Jains. My parents are from Kenya. And so they emigrated there because of the, like, the Raj. So they were yanked over to go work on Kenya. Hmm. By the way, if you ask me, I'm pro and against Raj. I, I, obviously, the Raj was bad for people who lived through it. I wouldn't be here for the Raj, so I'm conflicted about it. So it happened in the past. I would not exist without it. So I don't know how I feel about it. Mm. I'm sorry people did that. You should learn better in the future. But it happened. And so the, uh, my parent, my ancestors were there uh, in Kenya. And, you know, we were like gravel farmers in Gujarat. And they were poor. And they moved to Kenya and made their lives better and all sorts of things. But my, uh, my grandparent, my grandfather, he got wiped out. He got bankrupted. And this is back, you know, there's no bankruptcy laws. that like, There's no safety net. Right. right. You would inherit the, you would inherit the debt as children, you know, all the things that we don't do anymore. Right. And so my dad was both wanting to be an entrepreneur this low life and terrified of it. And so I inherited both those hmm. feelings where I, I like startups, but I didn't want to take the risk of owning the startup. So I like being in the startup. This, this is basically explains my career. It's pretty much, I enjoyed the energy of the entrepreneurship, but you know, having the, the risk of implosion, it's a big deal because you could impact your family. It was only when I realized that I don't have this problem. Mm-hmm. Also, like, you know, I'm not exactly alone in this household. I you know my wife is a doctor, so uh, she's not the richest doctor in the world, but you know, she's a perfectly reasonable professional income, right? So, you know, we're, we'll be fine no matter what I do because even if I wipe myself out with this startup, I still have a decade or more of contributions, you know. So, you know, it's not like, again, how much money do you need? <laughs> you know, to to be happy, you know. And so if you're going to die anyway, I feel it's better to make a life worth living and can contribute as much as you can. Mm Because, I mean, I get more joy out of other people living better lives because I did something for them than, you know, like, I don't care, like, what car I drive. I have a good car. I have a Subaru Outback. I have three kids. It's exactly what I needed. So, like, what do I need more than that? I don't know what I would do, you know, with more money. Buy a bigger house. I mean, sure. Then I have to clean the bigger house. It's more to clean <laughs> it's, like, it's like at some point you've made it, you know, and then it's like Definitely. what do you what do you what are you making for other people mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: I think it might be semi controversial, but I feel like a, I think for most people in the tech entrepreneurship space, they derive more joy from the giving of value than the anything effectively anything else just because they like, they feel like that's the you, you hit this high calling, and you realize okay i've I've met my personal needs, I've met my family's needs, I've met my Extended family's mean needs. I've extended. I've met the needs of my child's doctors, cousins' need. Like like at some point, everyone in your like immediate circles' needs are covered, and you realize that you have a lot of time left on the earth, especially with length of life getting substantially longer than it was. I call it like a century ago.
0: Yeah, and I think it's a privilege uh, that we have, which means that you know we we're all born with privileges. Uh, so the question is, what can you do? To, you take your privileges to make the world better for the next person mm-hmm. or other people, you know, to, so they can rise up, you know, build a ladder for success for other people. I and mean, what's the point of it all? I mean, you're going to die anyway. At least leave something behind for other people. I'll, I'll tell you, there's actually, there's, a, there's a really interesting article called, uh, it's, it's, um, I, I'm going to regret mentioning this, but I always find this hilarious What in weird times. It's called the laws of stupidity. Uh, it's from an economist, okay. Carlos Chipola. Chipolo? Uh, anyway, it's a great one because he talks about, it, it's a very cynical art, uh, thing. I like to take the positive spin on it now, but he talks about how there, everyone underestimates how many stupid people are there in the world. These are people who harm others, like harm themselves and harm others, you know, and create. there's no purpose to it. It's just chaos, right? But in his dimensions, there's like harming others and helping others and harming yourself and, and, hurting, and, and helping yourself, right? And and so most, like half the world or more than half the world is perhaps falling apart. And, and you know, and then half the world is improving. And he's saying like, there is also, there's stupid people, but he, he doesn't really focus on the intelligent, what he calls intelligent people, whatever. These are net creators. You know, these people who are helping not only themselves, but helping others. And those are the people who end up creating all the value in society that makes society progress. Because otherwise you have what he calls bandits, people taking value uh, hurting others oh, yeah. and those who are helpless, who are get, like losing value because like, of their own actions. Like you might like do a bad deal and give someone else something and lose something mm-hmm. yourself. Mm-hmm. Those are all destroying value. All that's all negative. The only thing that creates value is these these people who are helping others and helping themselves. And if you take that as an orientation, as a, as a, like a, as a simple a principle for happiness and joy and pride and satisfaction. Simple, like help others improve, and by doing so, help yourself. Uh, through the trade and, and common cause, like and then you know life is a is a joyful experience. It's not kicking and screaming, right? It is, um, you know, it is something worth doing and pleasurable. Now, starting a company at the beginning, you're not creating any value for anybody, right? Because you're unless you start selling for the beginning. We didn't, and so that period of time where you're not like making any any any, any traction is terrifying. But once you start making traction, then you know all the stress. Go the way you can enjoy it again. And then the only stress you should be having, I guess, is too much success if you do it right. Um, unless you take too much investment, then you're screwed. Don't take too much money. <laughs> <laughs> what do you
1: consider the appropriate amount of investment?
0: Uh, you never want, in my opinion, you want to, there's different strategies, but you want to create enough BATNA, best alternative to a negotiated agreement yes. that you can continue on with or without the investment, which is difficult if you're not if you're, if you're losing money. But you want to get yourself in a position where you don't need the investment, right? And if you don't need the investors, you don't have to give away strings, because uh, like the board should never be the place where you're focusing attention, because they have no money, like really, and they don't have real money. They're only selling. you they're depleting equity. You want to get revenue, right, from customers. So the board is wasting time from customers right, then that's not a good board setup, but you could end up in that situation. If you're raising money for the sake of raising money, it's better to just focus on what you can do to generate revenue. You know, I wish I was in a stronger position, but we had a lot of product risk for AppBind um, to sort out because, you know, building a credit card from scratch is actually non-trivial. It's not an easy thing to do. So it wasn't like a normal B2B SaaS product where I would have built it and started selling it from the beginning. I couldn't do that because it wouldn't even work, right? So um, that was the risk. So we tried to, we're to trying to control the amount of money that we're raising to what we predict will be enough to get to, uh, you know, revenue neutral. Uh, you know, and then we can raise more money to grow it. But that's what I would say. Like, focus on getting yourself into a place where you feel comfortable, like this business is under control. But like I said, what, why do clients hire contractors because they're freaking out they've lost control that's the same thing you're feeling you've lost control you know you want to get your business to place where you feel it's under control if you raise too much money and the investors are giving you pressure because you raised too much money and they want to return you've lost control again that's not that's not healthy you can't you know even for investors it's not a good position to, to destabilize management of the company right where they feel like they've lost control like that doesn't make any sense you've, you just do what you can control that's all you can do if you lose control then it's going to spiral out of you know just Be in a healthy place, you know, do as much as you can, develop yourself and control more, but keep things under control so that you feel comfortable. That's all I could say, you know, anxiety drives everything.
1: Do you you feel like your risk tolerance today is similar to your risk tolerance, say five or 10 years ago, or how has it changed over
0: time? It's definitely better. Um, I mean, a lot of that has to do with my financial position. So like, once my mm-hmm. wife finished med school, for instance, it's basically, you know, I supported her. Now she's supporting me, right? It's, I'm lucky. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that's like fair <laughs> to everybody. Uh, it's my situation. So I'm, I'm making the most of it. Um, so that mm-hmm. helped. I think also um, there are a lot of things I had to work through in myself personally uh, before I was ready to take on this level of responsibility. So I was definitely more scared... Of work and people, and I didn't know what to do about those feelings when I was younger. I was immature, and I had to work through what was holding me back. Uh, and the, like, even this laws of stupidity thing. For instance, when I was a kid, I enjoyed that because you know, I was cynical. I was like edgy and punk. I mean, you know, like, I'm almost a Gen X, so like, I was I was feeling all those. Yeah, fight the band, Disney, hate them, whatever. You know, and then. Uh, like, <laughs> I had all those feelings, uh, but now I'm older, I'm, uh, I look at the positive, I, can't, I, I reject the cynicism because cynicism is unhelpful, but I look at the positive part of that story. It's like, well, yeah, there are people who are net destructive, but there are also people who are net productive. And so if I focus on that, because that's the only thing that's worth focusing on, in p- my opinion, mm-hmm. then you can make learn something and make progress. But I had to have a mind, sh- my, a mind shift to do that and i think what where's risk tolerance what does that mean it's fear and anxiety you know i had to come to terms with my own anxiety i mean i still i still have anxiety not like in a normal way i have like a lot of anxiety uh but i might my my skills for managing it i've definitely improved uh i also think that people underestimate physical exercise uh in startup land, you know, but if your body is stressed out, it actually just wants to move. And if you spend too much time, mm. you know, working 50, 60 hours a week for your boss in startup land, what you're doing is you're teaching your body that it can't do anything with that stress. And it will start stressing. Start, mm. you're, you, you become afraid about being afraid or stressed about being stressed. And that becomes an un, un, unhelpful loop because you can't use, the, you can't use uh, the part of your brain that worries to worry because that becomes a feedback loop. And that actually happens a lot. That's what Mm -hmm. burnout and all sorts of things come from. Uh, You start, like, falling apart. It's like, I know people say you take care of yourself, but you have to take care of yourself because those emotions, emotions in your body, require motion. You have to move it. I mean, that's a Tony Robbins thing, but it's absolutely true, as it turns out. Someone told me that when I was younger. They teach the kids this now in school. You know, when I was a kid, it was like, head down, study harder. Now the emotional understanding is improved. So... That was a long story, but like, is my risk tolerance improved? Yes. What does it take to improve your risk tolerance? Like, first, your life will improve. Like, your c- circumstances will become more secure. Like, I, don't, mm-hmm. I, f- I feel like I can work, I can get a job if I had to. You know, I don't feel, you know, I feel like I made it. So if I, once you have made it, the question is, what can you make for others? Right? That's the question. You Have you made it? If you've made it, make something for someone else. Right? Help them make it. That's life. So I've done that. I've also figured out how my, what drives my fear. I've also f- figured out what to do with my fear. And I've learned that torturing yourself, uh, which a lot of people do in entrepreneur land, like, you can see, they're like, on red all the time. People are like, yeah, work harder. You know, like, <laughs> guy, you, know, you know, Gary Vay- Vaynerchuk, guy, honestly, like, <laughs> don't hustle hard to death, you crazy lunatic. If you torture yourself all you're gonna do is teach your brain that you're un, untrustworthy you know your brain will your brain is designed to survive it will it will it will crash it will stop you it, if you can't trust your conscious thinking it will just destroy your conscious thinking so it, it, the body will survive you know, you know hustle is important but enjoy it, <laughs> do it for joy not pain anyway. Gary, I mean, I know Gary, Gary I, would agree, but like, I think a lot of people in his universe sure. pick the pain story more than the joy yeah. story. He definitely loves what he does. I I, uh, I was a bit mean there. He can take it. He's a nice guy.
1: <laughs> Did I hear you correctly that you were afraid of people in the earlier stages of your career? Is that right? Afraid of people?
0: Yeah, I had social anxiety growing up. I was shy as a kid, which is funny mm-hmm. now. No one would know that. Uh, yeah, like, I was going to
1: say that. I was like how do you go from being a shy person? So I consider myself like relatively on the shyer side as well. How do you go from that to being a chief handshaker? Like that's the, the exact opposite. When I think of,
0: of, uh, transformations. Well, uh, I had this principle as a young person that whenever I thought negatively about a group of people, um, that everyone's rational in their own mind and they probably have a good reason for behaving this. And if I don't understand it, who, like, hmm. is it that, that they are stupid or I'm stupid? Now, as it turns out, they still could be stupid, but I am, I am definitely stupid if I don't understand what they're doing. Right. And so, uh, I would start joining and the other groups and trying to learn. So that's how I ended up in marketing. I used to be a software developer. I still consider myself a computer scientist primarily. Hmm. Like I now have a robot there and I have a, I want to build space robots as a kid. I still want to do that. Uh, like, so it's like, I like computer science more than anything, but I ended up in marketing because I couldn't, didn't understand why marketing and sales kept failing. So I went into hmm. it and learned it. Um, and there's definitely reasons why they fail. So it wasn't like I was completely wrong. Like they're so, but I learned more about why. And, and then through that process, uh, you start learning about things that are uncomfortable for you. And a lot of that's fear, right? And so you have to contend with your fear by just pushing into it, right? And any time that I avoided it, it was really painful. And I would say actually another thing that uh, I don't think is <laughs> I don't think I'm telling tales that Olark would not agree with. That one of the things that really bothered me, uh, I quit fresh books because I had my first kid, and hmm. I was freaking out. And the reason why is I didn't want uh, to a, be on the road with books 60. Hour, I want to be office for 60 hours a week. I want to be around my kids. That was a really important thing to me. Um, you know, like my own, like my dad was on the road when I was a kid. It's like I just want to be around my kids, and uh, I wanted financial security, uh, all sorts of things. And I, and I did what my dad told me to do, which is because he grew up inheriting debt. Right? He, he's like, just get a job, make the money, take care of the family. Don't worry about how much you. You, know, you how much don't worry about the job whether you like it or not and I just like muscled in there right and my priorities there were never I didn't orient myself to that job at Olark around making the job enjoyable I made it around like doing the hardest possible version of it like self pain because I thought that's what my <laughs> you're supposed to do and it wasn't like mature I mean I didn't know what I was doing I was like really like wrapping my head around being a parent um, but the right thing to do is actually to uh not be like so i was afraid of being a parent that's basically like yeah. wherever that career change came from like leaving the partnership track at freshbooks and going to become a because i thought being a cmo was a step to a more like executive role which is a more secure pay package you know that was my thinking i didn't want to be a cmo yeah. i don't want to be a cmo i don't i'm not a cmo i'm a product person who does partnerships it's not that's the world I live. I live in platform partnerships. That's really my, my my happy place, right? I left that job at FreshBooks, which I enjoyed. I loved it, you know, hmm. and I went to Olark. I did a good job for Olark. I didn't say I didn't do a good job, but, you know, it wasn't aligned to where I was going with my life. And, you know, I liked the product. I believed in it, but I just wasn't passionate about live chat like I was about partnerships, right? Hmm. And there was always this tension, like, why are you so focused on the partnership stuff when we have to focus on this? I was like, because I was torturing myself and it, that's not a mature thing to do, take out on someone else. Right. Like it was their company, you know, as much as I tried to do a good job for them, it just, I wasn't aligned in myself because I was lying to myself, you know? And so, um, and that was fear, right. About, so that's part of the reason when my third kid was coming, I was thinking about all this stuff. I was like, listen, this is stupid. Like I, I'm, I'm taking, I'm doing all, making all these wrong choices, uh, for me, it's impacting other people around me. It's not ethical. Right or healthy for me, and so I had to say goodbye to them because that wasn't reasonable behavior, right or mature. And I went right into like I didn't know what to do. I quit without a plan, but that I, I faced it down. You know, and it was terrifying. But you know, mm-hmm. by facing down the fear, um, then I got more comfortable with it. You know, I would even say it was like the pandemic did not help. Right, but uh, I got. really but in a way it did like i just got to a point where i realized that i'd be fine and then no matter what this i mean this idea that we're aristocrats finally landed in my mind uh again not to brag about that but it it is a privilege to take advantage of and give back and allows us some freedom to take the risks for other people so I mean, that's how you get comfortable with the risk, I guess. I mean, that's just part of being mature. I don't think I'm the only one on that journey. I think being in your 40s with kids, and of course, the kids are fine. They're healthy and okay. And uh, I think it's like the reverse midlife crisis. I guess I went through the midlife crisis. Did I take my midlife crisis out on Olark? That's so sad. I should have bought them a car.
1: I and had this conversation know.
0: with Ben, who's the CEO of Olark, uh, a couple, uh, like a month or so ago. We're just reminiscing. And I was like, yeah, like, well, that's basically what I was doing. Like, I, I, I didn't, I mean, if I knew that I was doing it, I wouldn't have done it. Like, I was like, like, you know, we're all human. So I was going through my human journey. And yeah, It's like, you know, really, why did I take this job with you? Why did I quit hmm. FreshBooks? I talked to Mike, too, who's was CEO of FreshBooks. Why did I do any of this stuff? And I realized now that, like, I'm at this point in my life, it's like, I just, did, I was terrified of being a dad simple as that. Hmm. How funny is that? But that's, it happens. So here we are.
1: You mentioned fear a good number of times. And I think fear is probably like one of the strongest motivators for people to do or not do certain things. And one of the reasons I want to start this podcast is I think there's a lot of people who are in the world of corporate, some of which are even like, like specialized in the world of like product development, they're engineers themselves. And they want to do their own startups at some point, but they are afraid that the, the, the fundraising component, the marketing component, the sales component, it drives them with fear because it's not something they've done before. So how do you, how would you encourage these people to make the transition to adapt, to tackle that fear versus like staying afraid forever and never bring life to their ideas?
0: Well, I don't necessarily support the idea of wanting to be an entrepreneur without a focus. Like why? Like there's no purpose. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, like it's so self centered and you can't build a business self centered. Mm -hmm. Like I had like a lot of clients, um, between leaving, leaving Olark and starting Appline because I was consulting. And what I learned is that I asked every CEO, what's your corporate goal? Is it more MRR, more revenue? Hmm. It's like, well, the problem with that is that everyone's a corporate goal in a sense, but wherever you're focused on, you know, when you're driving, wherever you focus on is where you drive. If you're focusing entirely on your bank account, it already has all your money. So it can't give you more money. Right? The only, the corporate goals can't be more revenue. That's not a corporate goal. That's the result of a corporate goal. Goals are always in the market external to your company. You need to be focused around the customer. So when people say they want to be an entrepreneur, it's like, but that's about you. Like what's, like being an entrepreneur is, is a, it's a fine career goal. I mean, people could want to be an executive, but that's about you. I don't, I don't mean that's not a, you should not have that goal. But being an entrepreneur is a set of skills that you're developing around in yourself. So you should just be then taking on as many skills. Like I did, I I have a weird career. I'm a librarian and a computer scientist. I did sales and marketing and design and speak, you know, obviously development and all sorts of things. I have a lot of skills that I built up to get myself to this position. So yeah, build yourself up, build your skills up, right? But if being an entrepreneur, it's not about you ultimately it's about the customer right unless you're like a lots of stupidity a bandit you're just stealing from people like i guess there's a lot of entrepreneurs like that that's fine uh, <laughs> supplement companies oh i'm gonna get emails for that uh the the, the uh I'm, I'm in the fitness track right now it's just like there's so many supplement companies oh yeah for like, sure this is all coming from me. anyway so the, the the uh the um Anyway, so if you're getting past your fears. So if you accept it's about someone else, then you open yourself up beyond your needs to start exploring other people's lives, right? And the more comfortable you are understanding and empathizing with other people and their pains and suffering, the better you are. And then, of course, I mean, lean startup. Like, I mean, come on, there's already a book. There's, a t- there's textbooks about what to do. Sell into the unknown, without, before you build product. Like, don't spend years building something that you know there's no demand. Mm-hmm. Although I guess that's what we did at AppBind. Although I had 10 years of the trade association talking about this endlessly. I knew there was a problem. Uh, but I didn't know they would buy the product we had. So that was maybe, you know, dumb or genius. We'll find out if I'm successful. <laughs> but you know, like so, the, my, the, the biggest thing to do is to enumerate your fears. Here's a, here's a technique. It's really simple. Take a piece of paper, write them down. Like write them all down. Like sit there. You know, don't drink, please. It doesn't help uh, when you're doing this. I found it doesn't really, it really, you can't. So sit there mid-afternoon or actually mornings even better, like on the weekend and just write down everything in your head, all the fears you have. And actually that, that or immediately you feel like you're under control and then group them and organize them. Right. And then you'll start seeing they're, they're, they're in like categories. So I don't know what market to be in. Okay. Well, you don't, you're not ready to be an entrepreneur because you don't know what the business is going to be. Right, so then, but you can start solving some of these problems by, like, well, how would I answer this question? Well, I don't know what market to be. I don't know what business I'm going to be. I know I want to be an entrepreneur. Well, you, just, you haven't figured it out yet. Just open yourself up to other experiences. You're 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 in a you're in a learning mode. You're in a, you're in a uh, you know, there's divergent and convergent. Things. You're just just explore the world. Be in the world. Learn about people. Learn how it works. You know, feel it. Find it what bothers you about things. You know, start working on it. It's like art, you know. Like if you ask an artist, sometimes they make lots of little sketches before they get to the masterpiece. You just make it, just throwing ideas out, just play with things. You don't have to commit to anything until you're committed. So just work on stuff, throw things out in the world, see what happens. If you do have an idea and then you don't know how to build it, you know the product, then you can start building sketches and talking to people. You know, just work on like what what are small tactical things to start confronting and contending with the fear and breaking it down until it becomes manageable. But if you if you don't write it down, it's in your head and you, mm-hmm. you, you can't control it. You put it in a place where you can control it. I, I you know I have, I'll tell you during the pandemic, I'm, like, I was a CMO. It was not like I don't know anything about marketing, even though maybe, you know, I could, there are better CMOs. But like, I know something about marketing, uh, but all these projects for marketing around Appline just fell apart. Cause I just like, I, I should forgive myself. But you know, there's a Canadian company that used to be called, called Dilex. Uh, it was a clothing company. Dialect stands for "damn your lousy excuses," which is amazing. The CEO there was incredible. I'm, I'm like really into dialects mode now. Like, you know, I was like, now I'm like like dialects. Like I don't. The, the pandemic happened to everybody. I don't. I don't care how I felt. I don't care what I, what I got done. I'm like, don't care. It's gonna get done. So I wrote down all the pro- all the marketing things that I know I'm supposed to be doing because it was just starting to pile up in my mind. I wrote them all. Mm-hmm. I took like two weeks. I wrote them all. I organized them into some kind of google doc and then like then i'm just working through them progressively because i just felt like whenever i was working on something i should have been working on something else i couldn't like, i was just whipsawing in my mind because it was all in my jumbled in my head write the damn things down put it under control like, even when we launched opmine i worked on all the things we knew right and start working down them to the point where i felt there was some confidence that there was a problem here whether or not we had the right solution or not you know it's just it's, you know, be a project manager also, it's very useful to be in entrepreneur groups. So get it out of your head. You're too much in your head. Get someone else to talk mm. to. You? Say it to someone, have them say it back to you. Because they will just sound ridiculous or they'll simplify it for you. Like you're not you're not alone. Don't be alone. Mm. Being alone sucks. Be with other people. Right? Founders helping founders, right? That's the Well, I think we
1: that's a uh, great great point to uh, that's a great point to close the show on. I am thankful for your time and I just want to be respectful towards it. I like just to end all of my calls the same way. Uh, what's the best way for viewers to get in touch with you? If that's something they'd like to do.
0: All right, so if you have a problem where you're trying to sell your software through partners or your software service company trying to manage subscriptions, come to www.appbind.com, A-P-P-P, B is in banana, in And I'm Sunir, S-U-N-I-R at appbind.com. And if you are a partnership person and want to hang out with all the partnership people, cloudsoftwareassociation.com, come join.